1 is where we'll be this morning. Today begins the season of Advent. And so we uh, light our Advent calendar, our candle. Hopefully you don't light your Advent calendar, but your candle. Um, and uh, it's a, a great way for us really to prepare for what Christmas represents. For us as a church to prepare and personally. Um, really, there are two fantastic things in history. There's many fantastic things, but two most fantastic things in history. Number one would be that God the Son died for us on the cross, died for sinners, and rose again. That's the most fantastic thing in all of history. But I think second to that would be the fact that God became a man. That God became a man. That's a profound thing that that uh, we can miss. We can miss in this holiday season. Uh, we, we live in a, a culture, we participate in a culture and a society that is increasingly ignorant of the real wonder of what Christmas represents. We are perhaps more taken with Black Friday sales and busy holiday schedules than the profound truth that God has become a man and all that that means. And these things, these, these other things that we're busy with, displace what should really be a, a holy hush in our lives in this season. And so we as a church can take time to, to pursue, by God's grace, a, a holy hush as we gather together to consider, to stop and consider, to slow down and consider just how amazing, how amazing the incarnation is, that God became a man. So that's what we do in our Advent series, this uh, series of four messages. We're, we're just kind of stopping our Philippian series to take time to slow down, to look at and consider the wonder of God becoming a man. The title of our series is Glory in Our Midst, and we're only going to be in one section of Scripture, kind of in, in line with what we're doing. We're just going to slow down. We're going to dig into John chapter 1, 1 through 18. And we're going to uh, look at it in sections and just consider the, the truths of, of this section of Scripture. This passage, John 1, 1 to 18, is called the prologue. It's, in a sense, an introduction to the entire Gospel of John. There's a lot packed into it. Uh, it's full of truth, and it's a worthy, certainly a very worthy passage for us in the Advent season. So we'll take to time today. We're just going to look at the first three verses today. I'll read the entire passage. We'll look at the first three verses, and then we'll go on to the next section, verses 4 to 9, then 10 to 13, and then 14 to 18, all with the idea of glory in our midst. So today's message is divine glory in our midst. Before we read the passage, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us, to help us slow down, to help us to see, to help us to hear the wonder of God becoming a man. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for who you are, Jesus, as God the Son. God three in one, you have existed from eternity, and your plan was that God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, would take on flesh and become a baby, a helpless baby in a, in a manger, and be fully human and yet fully God, and accomplish full redemption and the fulfillment of all the plans that you had, triune God, before time began. 
And more than that, you have revealed these things to us through your word, and you want us to know them. You want us to live in light of them. You want us, even in this season, to slow down and consider them. So we ask you now, O oh God, would you come and be with us? Would you speak through your word? Holy Spirit, would you grant me power to preach and proclaim? Would you grant us power to hear? Would you grant us power deep within our souls to be changed by your truth? Lord, we thank you to hear this sort of prayer. This is according to your will and your word. And so we ask it, confident of you answering. And we ask you to do above and beyond what we would ask or imagine, even as we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Read with me John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. John 1, 1 through 18. Well, how do you describe the Grand Canyon? J.B. Priestley, the 20th century author, says there is, of course, no sense at all in trying to describe the Grand Canyon. Those who have not seen it will never believe any possible description. Those who have seen it know it cannot be described. It is not a showplace, a beauty spot, but a revelation. The Colorado River made it, but you feel when you are there that God gave the Colorado River its instructions. The thing is Beethoven's Ninth Symphony in stone and magic light. George Wharton James, the 
19th century explorer said, though only 217 miles long, the Grand Canyon expresses within that distance more than any one human mind yet has been able to comprehend or interpret to the world. Famous word masters have attempted it. Great canvas and color masters have tried it, but all alike have failed. They know they cannot describe it, but they proceed to exhaust their vocabularies in talking about it and in trying to make clear to others what they saw and felt. Discussing God the Son, God incarnate, is like trying to describe the Grand Canyon. He is beyond words. He is beyond words. He is beyond our ability to fully comprehend. And sadly, I think for many of us, we have read these wonderful words in John 1, 1 through 18 before, and we can treat them as been there, done that. And yet, the glory revealed in this section of Scripture is greater than the glory of the Grand Canyon. And God has given it to us, actually, to reveal it to us, that we might experience and see this Grand Canyon of glory, this, this wonder of wonders, God as a man. And so we're going to dig into this section of Scripture over the next four Sundays. There's a lot here. There's a lot that we could talk about. I, I spent time uh, studying this passage more in depth and, and found wonderful delights. I quickly just want to show you some things. This prologue, I think there's a table to show, Brennan. This prologue is uh, an introduction to the whole book of the Gospel of John, and, and all the themes in the prologue are in this left column and mentioned, and you can see their corresponding places within the Gospel of John on the right-hand side. So it, this introduction that John gives us is an introduction to the whole Gospel of John, and all the wonders of who Jesus is revealed in the Gospel are, in a sense, summed up in this introduction. There's a lot here. It's poetic. It's a wonderful poetic introduction as well that we don't always grasp in the translation, but if you follow even just verses 1 to 3, the word, the nouns in the Greek, in the, in the Greek order, are re repetitive and poetic. It says, uh, just saying it in English, the nouns are beginning, word, word, God, God, word, beginning. That's poetry John is writing. More than that, actually, scholars have looked at, you can show the next slide, have looked at this passage and seen it what's called a chiasm. And you may wonder what that is, and I do sometimes too. But a chiasm basically is a structure of a sermon where it, 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 the first verse corresponds with the last verse in the section, second verse with the second to last, and so forth and so on. It makes kind of this downward shape, and then it highlights a middle verse. And, and so scholars have looked at it, this and seen, that, seen a chiasm that highlights this verse in the middle of 12, he gave the right to become children of God. And then if you look, everyone else corresponds. You can look at this slide. It's on our, uh, the blog, my blog, uh, via the church website if you want to dig more into it. I won't be able to talk about this much this morning. And I don't ask you to fully grasp that this morning, what all the chiasm and poetry means. I don't even necessarily ask you to agree whether it is a chiasm or not, but what I want you to recognize is that, that this section of Scripture is a lot deeper and a lot more glorious than perhaps you've ever understood. There's a lot here. And we're going to dig. We're going to explore. We're going to behold God the Son in all His glory as revealed in this passage. And by His grace, we will touch on some of that glory and see some of it this morning. So let's dig into verses 1 to 3. First off, we see and hear that it says, In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was 
the Word. And you may wonder, what is the Word? Why is John choosing to use this phrase, the Word? What does that mean? This just sounds kind of uh, esoteric. I mean, it's just, what, what's going on? Some deep philosophy here? Well, well, John is using this phrase, the Word, to get at a lot of things. One of the things is uh, that John uh, wrote later. This Gospel is later than the other Gospels. Then The Gospel had gone out to more... Uh, more Gentiles, and probably in that context, he probably wrote this gospel from Ephesus, and they would have been more influenced by Greek thought, and Greek thought uh, had this expression or this idea of the word. They had this idea that there was this word, there was this governing principle of the universe, and it, and it wasn't a person, it was an idea, it was a principle. It's actually uh, analogous to the modern idea that there is an equation that sorry, governs the entire universe. Uh, Anyone here heard of the theory of everything, the TOE? Any scientist types? Sorry, I'm all alone here. Um, but there's this idea that there's this ultimate equation that explains it all. And that's like the, the words, the, the equation. And so they had this idea, that was part of the background. There was this, this grand governing force over the entire universe. Well, John says, in the beginning was the word, and they would have tracked with that. But he says a lot more. He presents that, that this one is not just an idea. He's not an equation. He is much more. He is a person. He is God. God the Son. For the Jews, they would have understood the word as well. And they would have actually seen in this phrase an almost identical sentence or phrase as the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning was God. In the beginning was God. And they would have understood, okay, he's equating word with God here. They also would have understood that, that God accomplished his, his work through His Word. They would have understood that God created the universe with a Word. They would have understood that God had, had revealed Himself with the Word. They would have understood that He delivers and heals and judges with His Word. They would have understood that His Word functioned in this important way in all His plans. And so John's tapping into that as well, it looks like. Even the second, more likely than, than the first, talking to Jews, that Jesus Christ is the Word, the ultimate Word. The ultimate Word through whom God fulfills all these functions of, of creating and revealing and delivering and healing and judging His creation. And this is the connection intended. That Jesus is this ultimate Word. Jesus is the theory of everything. Jesus is the, the first and preeminent One. And John says that it was in the beginning that was the Word. In the beginning, in the very beginning of all things. And, and this word beginning means more than just like right the microsecond before time and creation started. It, it means more than that. We tend to think of the beginning. That's, you know, the beginning. It's right before you start. But it means more than that. It, it means in that place uh, before all things. Eugene Peterson translates it in his paraphrase, the message, saying, first... First there was God, or first there was the Word. And, it, and it's the idea that before there was anything, before time, before anything had happened, but, but, but more than that, in the preeminent place, the, the, the first cause, the first, the first reality in the beginning was the Word. This place before time. This place before our current reality as we know it. He existed. And as we study Scripture, we recognize that God existed eternally in the past. 
He is outside of time. He's eternal. He existed eternally in the past. And that just that can blow our, our minds because I think we, we kind of get the idea of existing eternally in the future. And the idea to us is that, I mean, we just keep on experiencing reality. And, and we know that as believers that that reality will greatly be transformed when Christ returns. And it will be a blissful eternal reality for those who have run to Christ for forgiveness, run to Christ as their king. But we get the idea that it will go on and on and on to some extent. It makes sense to us, though, if you really think about it, like, wow, man, at some point we'll be celebrating our you know, gazillionth birthday, I guess. It's, a, it's hard to think of that. But God existed before time, eternally outside of time as well. He has always been. He will always be. And in the beginning was the Word. The Word was there with God. The, the Word existed. The Word was God. God has existed as the Word, the second person of the Trinity, forever, before time. And there's a lot. Oh, there's so much we could just talk about what went on before there was time. One thing that was going on before time, before anything existed as we now know it, in that eternity past, God fellowshiped among Himself the three persons in one, and God dreamed about what He would do. He dreamed about his plans as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He thought about what he would do, and, and, and theologians debate about what exactly happened and, and the order of when it happened and all that. I'm not going to get into that. Uh, but we do know one thing he dreamed about, in, in dreaming about all that he would do, and dreaming about expressing his glory in creation and showing the, the excellence of who he is and his wisdom and goodness and, and, and sharing that glory with a special creation, mankind, men and women. He dreamed about these things. And there's a really amazing truth in that dreaming of God. As he dreamed, as he thought about all that he would do, do you know what? Believer, if you are a believer in Christ, he thought about you in that time, in the beginning. And he thought about how he would rescue you. How he would work in your life. How He would go about rescuing you from the sin that He knew would come and capture your life. He thought about you. He thought about you by name. He thought about you by detail. He knows the hairs on your head. He thought about you. He thought about you being here even this day. He thought about you. He considered you. He dreamed about what He would do in your life and through your life. That's a wonderful thing. In the beginning, that's part of what was going on. Ephesians teaches us this. Ephesians chapter 1, wonderful promises for any and all who would come to Christ. These promises are for you. They're for you if you've come to Christ, if you belong to Him. And, and all that needs to happen for you to belong to Him is simply to say, Lord, I don't want to do it my way. I need you. I need your forgiveness. I want you to be my king. To, to put your faith in Him, to turn. And, and, and all these promises are for you. You would be the one excluding yourselves from the blessing of these promises should you not come to this glorious and great Savior. You can come today. You can respond right now even as you listen. Quietly just praying that. This promise would be for you, and it is for all believers. Ephesians chapter 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world. 
that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. So in that place, in the beginning, He thought of you and He said, I'm going to rescue this one. I'm going to work. I'm going to rescue this one from their sin and I'm going to make them holy and blameless. They're going to be forgiven in, in, through the life and the death of, of my Son. And the Son and the Father talked about this together and fellowshiped around this. I don't know how it worked, but there was this fellowship and there was this plan. Jeremiah says, God says through Jeremiah to his people, the Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. Are you grounding your life as a believer in the sure promise of that everlasting love? That must be your ultimate confidence. Your confidence to, to belong to God and to stand before Him cannot be on anything else. It cannot be ultimately on, on what you do. You cannot earn somehow God's approval and acceptance. You cannot redeem yourself. You cannot be cute enough and adorable enough somehow in God's eyes to be welcomed in. It is only because He first loved us that we love Him. And it's only because he, he chose in His wisdom, He set His heart, His mind, and His affections on you before time. He has loved you with an everlasting love. And in that love, He chose to send His Son for you, to rescue you. And then in time, to give you awareness through the power of the Holy Spirit, to recognize that this promise is for you to respond to and receive. And that is the place we must stand ultimately. I stand as a Christian only because ultimately God has loved me with an everlasting love. He, you stand as a believer. You stand before His presence only ultimately because He has loved you with an everlasting love. Are you living in that sure love? Is that part of your joy this Christmas season? That He has loved you with an everlasting love and that the Word who was with God in the beginning planned to come and redeem you. On the cross. Charles Spurgeon says, it makes the tears run down one's cheeks to think that we should have an interest in that decree and counsel of the Almighty Three. When everyone that should be blood-bought had its name inscribed in God's eternal book. He thought of you before you had a being. When as yet the sun and the moon were not. When the sun, the moon, and the stars slept in the mind of God like unborn force in an acorn cup. When the old sea was not yet born, long ere this infant world lay in its swaddling bands of mist, then God had inscribed your name upon the heart and upon the hands of Christ indelibly to remain forever. And does not this make you love God? In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was your Savior. And they planned before time to rescue you. He shared the glory. Among the, the triune God, there was glory that they all shared. And a part of that glory flowed into His plan for redemption and His love for you. It says that in the, word, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. 
The Word was with God. And, and John, when he says the Word was with God, he means something more than, than that the Word was some tag-along groupie that just happened to get backstage passes to be able to meet the, you know, before the concert with the artist. It, it, it isn't with God in that sense, that, that somehow the Word just happened to be there, you know, tagging along. Uh, but that the Word was with God in, in full relationship with God. There was communion. There was relationship. There was a sharing of the glory. And we know about this not only from John chapter 1, but from John chapter 17, because when Jesus is at that place where He's praying for His people, where He's facing His crucifixion and, and, and resurrection, all that that means, when He's in that place in John chapter 17, He says something very profound. He says, And now, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And then listen to this. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That he was with God in the beginning, sharing in this glory, and, and he came and, and became a man and he brought his disciples to him and he died and rose again for his people. And his heart's desire is that those disciples in John 17 and all that would come as well after them and all that came before them would be with him to see his glory, to enjoy his glory. And so in John chapter 1, we learn that he was with God in the beginning in the fullness of what that means. But we also know from John 17 that that means that we get to be with God as well. And part of the incarnation is the wonder that God would so care about us that He would become a man and He would forever tie His glory to our good. That His eternal plans include redeeming us to be with Him with, in His presence, in His glory. And this is where it's hard to describe the Grand Canyon because I can say glory and it's like, I get that. But no, there's so much more to glory, the glory of the Lord and all that He is. It's beyond words. He is glorious. He is great. He's holy. He's powerful. All the greatest things we see on earth are mere shadows of His glory and they flow from Him. Every good gift comes from Him. Think of the greatest joys in, in creation you've experienced. Deep love in a family. Creation, things like the Grand Canyon, these are all just things that flow from the artist's hands. It's the artist who is truly the glorious one. And so we will be with him forever and see his glory, and, and there'll be depth to that beyond imagination. You will not be sitting there strumming a harp in a robe on a cloud. That's not seeing and enjoying the glory of God. I mean, we might strum harps. I'm fine with harps. I'm fine, I'm fine with clouds. But I think there's a lot more than that. There's depth. There, there is wonder. Uh, we're going to be in a new creation, so we'll be here on the earth. Read the Scriptures, you'll see there's much more to it eventually when He returns. And, and we'll, everything, everything, we will see the fullness of His glory and enjoy it. We'll be with Him as well. We'll be with Him and behold His glory and enjoy Him. And that is the very best. I read about a, a young boy named Tyler. He was suffering from a life-threatening illness, and, and as part of the Make-A-Wish Foundation, he wanted to meet Tom Brady of the New England Patriots. Well, he, along with some other young boys, uh, got to meet Tom Brady, and their visit exceeded all expectations. On a Sunday morning in October, this past October, they awoke to a beautiful, sunny, but brisk uh, fall day. 
The entire hotel staff where they were was decked out in Patriots jerseys and hats and, and had the private breakfast room set up with Patriots decorations. They were escorted by limousine to Gillette Stadium at, and at 12.15 they made their way to the, uh, the field for the practice, the team practice. Within minutes after their arrival, Robert Kraft, the owner of the Patriots, came over to meet everyone. Then minutes later, Tom Brady, Wes Welker, Dion Branch, and Matt Light, and sorry if you're not a Patriots fan, you're probably wondering, who are these people? <laughs> Dion Branch and Matt Light came walking over to meet everyone. They visited with their kids and their families, they took pictures and signed autographs, and then the entire New England Patriots team came over to visit as well with Coach Belichick. The children didn't know where to turn. Everywhere they looked, there were Patriots players. They, the team headed to the locker room, but Tom Brady and Wes Welker remained with the children. They were extremely generous in their time with the kids. They took photo, more photos, signed more autographs, uh, just talked to the kids and asked and answered a lot of questions. They gave each child a gift bag, included a Patriots jersey with their child's name on the back, a football, pictures, etc. And once they left, the kids had the entire run of the field. They're running up and down, throwing and kicking footballs. Well, I would love to do this. <laughs> Simply just taking it all in, and they finished up with a visit to the restaurant and the Patriots Hall of Fame. And then the next day, they were picked up, brought to the stadium for the big game. And of course, uh, it was even better because that day, sorry to John Janelle, the Patriots beat the Cowboys 20 to 16. <laughs> we, have, we have one Cowboys fan amidst us. How wonderful that would be to be able to meet Tom Brady and be with all those people. But to be with Jesus in his glory is far, far better than anything like that. And he was with God in the beginning and he has called us to be with him. He has made all the provision for us to be with him. He shed his blood for our sins. He rose again. He sent the Spirit to dwell in us, to keep us, to guide us to grant us faith. And he guarantees, he will guarantee, and does guarantee that we will be with him forever and to enjoy his glory, to be in his presence. And if you make your wish on Jesus, so to speak, that is all yours. That's part of the wonder of Christmas. He came to be with us so that we can be with him forever. Continuing, in our passage, it says that the Word, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this is a wonderful statement, the Word was God. Certainly we understand in English it means the Word was God, that, that the Word was God. I mean, God's the Word. That's true, and that's what it means, but it, but it, it means more than that, actually. And uh, It's an amazingly and delicately structured sentence in Greek, and you don't necessarily need to know the Greek to understand the most important thing that the word was God but it's said in such a way that it's clear that the word was God not a God not godly not a deity of some sort as some have said and it's not it's clearly that the word was was God but but part of the nuance in the Greek uh, they they use the article the or to leave it out to to it works in Greek in a different way that we understand it in English and it makes it very clear that the Word is God, but also that the Word is not the full equivalence of God. And what I mean by that is not that the Word isn't God, but the Word is not the fullness of God. In other words, God includes the Word. 
God includes the, the three persons of the Trinity is what it's getting at. There are three persons. There's more than one person. There's God the Son, God the Father, and God the Spirit. And so when it says the Word was God, it, it says all that. That's the wonder of God's Word, by the way. That preserves and protects us from heresy, from misunderstanding Jesus, saying that he's merely a God. It doesn't say that. Or to say he's the fullness of God. He's God in its entirety. Another thing called modalism says that there was God the Father, then he became God the Son, and now he's God the Spirit. He's only been one person ever. That's not what John 1, 1 and 2 teach us. He is God. He is fully God. He's fully divine. He is a person in the Godhead, the three persons. But he has all the qualities of God. He is God. And that's so important for us to understand too. That he is God. If Jesus, the Word, were not God, He could not accomplish what God sent Him to do. He could not. Only God could fully believe and obey the perfect commands of Scripture. Only God. Only God could lead a sinless life. Only God could face the worst imaginable horror anybody has ever faced. To bear the holy wrath of God, the holy justice of God on the cross for sin. The, the, in the sense, infinite wrath, the infinite justice of God. Only God could deal with that. No human, no created being could bear that. Only God. And so when God dies on the cross, He effectively pays for all His people's sins. And no one else could. The archangel Michael could not pay for that sin. A human being could not pay for that sin. Only God could pay completely and fully. The death of God was of infinite worth. And it more than covers all of your sins as you turn to Him. Only God could do that. Only God could accomplish your salvation. And so it's important for us to understand this. That we can put our confidence in Christ. He is God. The fullness of God. And He is a man. And we'll talk about that too. He's fully man, but He is God. And when He did His work of salvation, when He says, said, it is finished, it was finished for you once and forever. He is fully able. Maybe I'm just stuck on football stories this morning. Um, I don't know why. But uh, I thought about a friend of mine who told me about playing high school football with Robert Perryman. Did anyone remember Robert Perryman? He was a running back for the Patriots back in the late 80s. Um, and he went to Bourne High School. And when he played at Bourne High School, he was a, a man among boys. Uh, he, was, he was a big guy. He's 6'1", I think, 230, 240. Uh, he was a good running back in the NFL. He played at Michigan, but he was a fantastic running back at Bourne High School. And they were undefeated his junior year. And you know, you know what they would do every game? They would give the ball to Robert Perryman. And Robert Perryman would run over people and get touchdowns again and again and again. And they just beat everybody. He was a man among boys. He was fully able to win their game. And if you were on the team, if you were on born, the Bourne High School team, um, you had confidence that you were going to go in and win this game because you know the, you might do your little job, but the ball's going to Robert Perryman. He's going to run over people, score touchdowns, and win. It's not good if you're not on the Bourne High School team, like my buddy, he's facing, playing against him. But that's what uh, Robert Perryman was, was just a wonder in high school. That's what our Savior is like. He is God. God is a man. And when the Father gave him the ball, the job was going to get done. 
He was going to accomplish, and he did accomplish all that the Father gave him to do. And so, knowing that he is God grants us the, the perspective to put our full trust in what he did and what he will do. He paid for your sins. He will preserve you. He is the good shepherd. He will keep you. He will let, not let you be snatched out of his hand. No one can snatch them out of, you out of his hand. Not even yourself, by the way. No one can. He will see it done. He is fully capable. And that's part of what we celebrate at Christmas, this fully capable one. One more thing before we close. We learn as we look at verse 3 that all things were made through him and without him was not anything that was made. That every single thing that was made was made through him. There's not anything in creation that was made apart from him. He is the chief agent of creation. God the Father superintends it. God the Son uh, is the agent of doing it. God the Spirit is involved. All three are involved. But, but everything that was made was made through the Son. And we learn that here. We learn it elsewhere in Colossians chapter 1 as well. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and vi invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He has made all things. And so why is John telling us this? Well, he wants us to know He's God. That's probably first. But he also wants us to understand that as the creator of all things, he has a divine prerogative over his creation. He has authority. He has a right to his creation. Think of it this way. Imagine you're at home and you're going to make a cake. You're going to make a carrot cake. I love carrot cakes. You're going to make a carrot cake with that cream cheese frosting that Peg makes sometimes. It's so good. You're going to make this cake. And, and you do all your work, you grab your ingredients, you, sh you know, it's from scratch. That's hard to do a carrot cake from, from scratch. Um, and, and so you, you, know, you grind your carrots, you scrape your carrots, you've got your spices, your sugar, your, your baking soda, and whatever else goes in there, I don't know. Uh, and you make your cake, and, and you put it in the oven, and it rises, you take it out, you let it cool, you put it on the frosting. It's beautiful, and all of a sudden there's a knock on the door. Knock, 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 knock. Who is it? Cake police, open up. The cake police come in, and I'm just making this up for the point of the story, but <laughs> the cake police come in and say, you are cooking an illegal cake. You're not allowed to cook carrot cakes, and we're going to confiscate your carrot cake. What would you do if someone did that? You'd be like, what are you talking about, cake police? This is my carrot cake. I made it. Like an hour ago, it was just bits of carrot and Sugar and spice and stuff. You have, what are you talking about? You're going to confiscate my cake. And you're probably tempted to pick the cake up and just go throw it on the floor. Ha! Take my carrot cake now. Right? Why? Why would that be your attitude if there were ever such a thing as a carrot cake, please? Or a cake, please? Because you understand that those that create from scratch have right of ownership. If you make this thing from scratch, you have rights over it. It's yours. And you have the right to determine what to do with that cake. And in a sense, that cake has an obligation to you to be your cake. <laughs> and it's absurd to think of anyone else trying to take your cake. And that's what John's teaching us. <laughs> that's what John's teaching us in this section. Jesus is the ultimate cake maker. He has made things from scratch. He has made creation from scratch, and it's rightfully His. And the sad thing is that we, in our natural selves, are the cake police. And we say to God, no, 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 no. My cake, my cake, 
I am my own. I am the captain of my own destiny. I will make decisions. Or this thing is mine. This thing is mine. And we're just like the cake police saying, no, it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to me. It's just as absurd. We don't own the cake. We didn't make the cake. We are the cake. And the word, God the Son, has every right to our lives. And it is wrong. It is absurd rebellion to be self-determining in our lives, to say, I'm going to call the shots. I'm going to do it my way. That's why sin is just so foolish and ridiculous. That's why we, we should look at ourselves and just say, oh, God, free me from this, this insane urge to assert myself apart from you, this insane urge to try to find my way through life without you, this insane urge to run to the things that destroy me and destroy others that you've told me to stay away from. Rescue me. For those who say that, he is more than able and more than willing to come. He sent his Son. The Son has come for you. And the power of the Gospel, the power of the Spirit in your life, the power of the fellowship of his people will sustain you. That invitation is open, and and it's not an invitation you take just once. If you haven't taken that invitation, take it now. But you will need to take it, I will need to take it all the time. Rescue me. Forgive me. He has made full provision. If the band could come up as we close. So what do we do? What do we do with John 1, 1 to 3? Well, there's a lot that we can do, and we've talked about it, of course, as we've gone along. What do we do with these wonderful realities that he is the divine word, the the revelation, expression, fullness of God? What do we do with the fact that he's fully God, that he's existed eternally in glory, that he's made all things? What does this all mean? Well, again, it means a lot of things, but I think the bottom line thing for us to take away from this today is this, that Jesus is fully worthy of our complete Jesus is fully worthy of our complete faith. And that is where John's going in this section, by the way. He wants us to understand we're, we're called to place our faith in this one. He, t- he gives us the promise that, that all who believe and receive Him, He gives the right to become children of God. He says, come and place your faith in Him. John 1, 1-3 teaches us that Jesus is fully worthy of our complete faith. So let's ask ourselves... Is he fully worthy of my complete faith? Or is he just a little better, perhaps, than the alternatives? Is he just another idea, a fad, or a self-help concept among many? Is he just another way to feel good about myself, right alongside maybe a good meal or a soft couch and a TV remote, and then there's Jesus? Is he just another pursuit in life alongside a career or a family or a house or whatever else? Or is he worthy, fully worthy, of our complete faith? Are we laying our lives on the line in him, giving ourselves to him, and saying, Jesus, you are fully worthy of all my life. And all these other pursuits are going to fall in the right perspective as I place my faith, my full trust in you. You are fully worthy. This Christmas... Let's put our life in the hands of Jesus. He is fully worthy of our complete faith. Let's pray.